I want to read where we left off last, well, we actually covered it last week, but I want to put it into context. So turn to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 5, and I'm just going to read through it so we can remember what it is we've studied. Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 5, and Paul's telling Titus why he placed him on the island of Crete, and we've already covered who Titus is. We know these are a lot tougher in a sense than Timothy is. Uh, and he, and, and Paul has given this guy a mission that just is, is God awful. And so, uh, Paul says in verse five, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation and subordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So he's saying, you know, Titus, pick, pick godly men. And um, as we see, the qualifications are actually harder than the ones he gave to Timothy. Um, you know, in, in regards to Timothy, he said um, that that the, the the elder, the bishop, must rule his house well and his children well. In this case, it says your children have to walk with the Lord or you're out. And um, and he lays this out pretty heavily because they're, they're in Crete. And we're going to see why it's important to have a testimony on the island of Crete. Look at verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So there were some legalists in there and, and Judaizers, and they were messing with the church, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they not ought for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And we covered that, and we know how in the Roman world Cretans were considered exactly that. Uh, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. And again, that's dealing with food. It's not dealing with, hey, you know, marijuana is of the earth, it's pure. No, that's not it. And this, this verse is so often taken out of context. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So he lays this out. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete. You're dealing with these, these liars, these evil beasts, and these lazy gluttons. And, and you have got to put that city in order. You've got to put that church in order. You've got to get those knuckleheads out. You've got to confront them. You've got to be heavy with them. And uh, it, it's going to be war, Titus. And you're up to the task, so take it. And then he says, here, here's how you're going to put that church in order, and here's how you're going to reestablish that nation and those cities um, all throughout the island of Crete. And that brings us to chapter 2, and that's what we'll study tonight. I'm only going to go through 15, well, actually, it's all of the verses tonight, but I'm, I'm going to focus on a few in depth. Uh, let's pick up. But as for you, meaning um, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And by the way, sound doctrine is this idea. He's not saying, you know, I want you to go into eschatology. I, 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 you know, it's that, that's not the idea. Sound doctrine, uh, the, the, the basic truths of the Christian faith, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, uh, the inerrancy of God's word. I want you to stay to that. I want you to teach people. I want them to understand clearly. And then he says that the older men be sober. 
<laughs> they had a real problem with Bacchus, the, the god of alcohol on the island, and everybody loved their drink. And he says, you got to find some, some godly men who are sober. Um, I remember when I first got to Calvary Chapel, and there were 50 people in the church, and we needed to appoint elders, and we were hard-pressed to find some guys. And now we're, we've got a waiting list of guys we want to bring up. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was, a, it was a sad state of affairs for a season. Um, and, and this is kind of what Titus is up against. Find older men. They don't have to be ancient. They don't have to be, you know, Gandalfs. But, but find older men that are sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love. Remember, you speak the truth in love. There has to be a balance with it. We don't want folks that are just apologetic, uh, apologists of the faith and, and, and folks that love to, you know, deal with eschatology in the end times. And, and we want folks that really have a balance of love and truth. And, uh, there, there's a, a presence of faith in their life and they do it in patience. They're not anxious about anything. And then as he lays this out and he talks about older men that are sober, reverent, sound in faith, love and patience, then he speaks and he says, Older women likewise, and we'll take a look at this more in depth tonight, older women likewise. And I can tell you by experience that uh, Calvary Chapel, when, when I got here 15 years ago, it actually was women that had a hand in turning the church, and I'll explain that momentarily. Older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Uh, diabolos, where they get the word devil, uh, you know, the forked tongue. Uh, don't, don't be slanderers. And uh, not given to much wine. So women, you, you're, you're allowed to have a little bit. Don't overdo it. <laughs> Teachers are good things. Good things. That they admonish young women. Now they're, they're teaching younger women and they're given a task. And they want to, they, they, Paul says, admonish young women to, and this is really interesting, to love their husbands. To love their children. To be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may, be not, may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering. Cretans were stealing left and right, and everybody was a culture of theft, and just stop pilfering. If, if it's not yours, you don't take it. But showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. The idea is to lift up Christ by your behavior. And then verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Not just some, but to all. And you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. The grace of God has appeared to all men. It's open to everybody. It's not limited. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It doesn't say that the works of man that brings salvation. It doesn't say the obedience of man that brings salvation. It says the grace of God that brings salvation. Salvation by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen? That's Ephesians. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is quite a picture of the deity of Christ right there. 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for what? Zealous for what? Good works. All of this is about walking out your faith in what you do. What you believe should be reflected in what you do. Uh, right? And then it says, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Go, Titus, take care of it. Fix the church. And he lays it out and he says, first of all, we're going to get we're, we're going to get older men who are sober and reverent and temperate, sound in faith and love and patience. And you want to work with those guys. And then older women likewise. It's a, it's a dual aspect. Find men that you can set as an example that have, have been there, done that, got the t-shirt. You could look to them as the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Get some of those guys as examples. And we had some of those early on at Calvary Chapel. But it was the older women, sober-minded. Uh, I remember um, the Johnsons. And I, I remember Mrs. Johnson and, and what an example she set for the church. And the church had a little bit of backbiting and there was some slandering and it was a, it was a tough, um, a tough time. And, um, I remember Michelle was pregnant with Michael. And, uh, the first thing that I got inundated with as a brand new pastor was we got to set up a women's ministry. And all these women came and told me needed to happen. And I went to my wife and I said, you really got to set this up. And, you know, here she is just about to have a baby in October. And, uh, and, and she just says, well, let me pray about it. And when Michelle says she, she's going to pray about it, she prays about it. And, and some people don't like how long it takes. And uh, she doesn't care. She's, she's before the Lord and spending time with the Lord. And I was having to fend off all the people. When is it going to happen? When is it going to well, we're, we're just bathing in prayer right now. But we need, and we got to, da 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 And I'm like, come on, honey, let's, <laughs> let's get on this. I can't handle this anymore. And, uh, but she, she was prayerful about it. And it was interesting because that prayer revealed... Over time, those that you could use and those that, that you couldn't because impatience started to reveal itself, right? Cream rises, right? And all of a sudden, the cream started to rise, and, and the people that were impatient, it just they, it became very evident. And those weren't people that you wanted to wait upon. And, and these older women, they were reverent in their behavior. They weren't slanders. And you started to get wind of the, the backbiting and the snippiness and the comments and the... And he started to think, well, that's not somebody that we're going to entrust leadership to. You got to find people that are patient and they're not slanders and, and they're reverent in their behavior. That idea of reverence is, is honoring authority and, and reverent in that regard, the way they carry themselves. There's just something special about them and they're not given to much wine. I mean, you know, you go home and have a glass of wine. That's fine. But you know, you're not going home to, I need, you know, mama's little helper. You don't, you know, that's not what we're looking at there. Um, and I think the, the wine is dependent on the number of children. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and teachers of good things, teachers of good things, the, what they lay out and the way they do that. But here's, here's one of the areas where you really saw uh, a unique difference in, in um, who would be in leadership and who wouldn't. In the way that they love their husbands or their husband and the way they love their children. If they love their husband, it was evident. I mean... You know, I, I remember I remember one woman that was married to a man that was difficult to be married to. And I never heard a bad thing out of her mouth in relation to him. Not once. She became a key leader in the women's ministry. 
And it was fascinating because it established the children's ministry. And when the children's ministry was established, they, they say that the first thing you invest in as a new pastor is a children's director and a worship leader. You want youth ministry. Well, the, the minute that the women were establishing, started to see these leaders, the children's ministry was established. The church was healthy at that point. People would come to the church and they'd realize our kids are going to be well cared for. Because you had people that, that saw this as a calling. Not only did they love their own children, love their husband, but they loved other people's children. They were reverent. They were sober-minded. They were, they were temperate. They were sweet. And as the scripture says, that they admonished uh, the younger women to love their husbands. And I remember they used to have these Titus meetings. And it was, it was Mrs. Johnson that would put these Titus meetings together and teach the younger women. And I watched the entire church change from a church that had been dysfunctional for years and overnight change because of a handful of women. Michelle can testify to this. And it, and it just started to take off to the point where we were at three services in no time at all. And it was all because of that turning point with these women and watching what they did. And I watched the Johnsons lead uh, a couple to Christ. And actually, they ended up leaving town. They moved because he retired. And the house that they sold it to, it was the Pierres, Peterson and Angelica Pierre, that are instrumental in our, our fellowship now. And they were brand new believers that the Johnsons had a huge influence on and established them. And today, uh, he's one of our elders, and, and she is indispensable. And they're, they're both doctors, both Stanford trained. And, and you want to talk about somebody who loves her husband and loves her children. She gave up her practice to care for the children and homeschool them. She went through Stanford and got a, uh, she's an MD, pediatric uh, emergency uh, uh, doctor, and uh, she's raising kids and set an example that just deeply affected the church, powerfully affected the church. And they're discreet and they're chaste. They're homemakers. You'd come in and there was, there was the gift of hospitality and, and the way that they did things. And all of a sudden you had a quilting ministry pop up and you had, you had people doing all kinds of things in the church. And, and teaching these talents and these giftings to one another. And it was really precious. And, and all of a sudden, you'd turn around, the church was clean, and people were doing things. And it, it, it just felt like a home. It was a home. And people owned it, and they cared about it. They started to love on one another. And that wasn't done by men. Men don't see dirt. Yeah, amen. Men, men don't, you know, my kids come to me, look at what I drew when they were younger. I'm like, that is awful. Nobody, that doesn't even make any sense. And my, you know, my, my wife, oh, sit down. And then, you know, oh, that's beautiful. You put a star up here. What's this, sweetie? And explain it. You know, you're so creative. And, uh, and that's the nurturing side. And it was precious. And, and the way that she would love the children and the way that the home was always a place that you could come home to, and it, it was a place to rest. And the, and the women turned the church into that. And they were good, and they were obedient to their husbands. And, and that was one of the things that turned the corner as well, because some of these men, the women understood that, that the Lord is way better, the Holy Spirit is way better at convicting of sin than they ever would be. And you watch them become prayerful and trusting God, watching men's lives change as they would pray. And you just watch this whole change, and all of a sudden there's strong men in the church. And that was affected by these women. They say, yeah, men wear the pants in, in the house. Yeah, but the women pick them out. Yeah, right? You're not going to wear that. Are you kidding me? Stripes don't go with polka dots. They don't? Oh, I just thought they were clean. I, well, they were in the pile that I didn't smell. So I, I put those on. Yeah. And then the other line is, you know, the man is the head, but the woman's the neck. You know, just where are we going? It's just turning. And, and, and this is what, what changed the church. And, and this, this obedience to their husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And, and when, the, when the Bible gives us depiction of, of a marriage, it's, it's, it's a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. 
And that's what a, that's what a marriage is, the identity of that. Uh, Jesus is the groom and we're the bride and, and even a wedding when I see it and all come together and you, you look at the children and the, the, the coverings that are given to a family and how God laid this out and it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And every strong family, every strong family at the heart of it is this woman. This woman described that, that Paul understood the value of. Paul had to have been married. His wife took off on him. Uh, and that's why he would say in Corinthians 7 uh, that the divorce is permitted for the abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse. She, she left him. And, uh, and, and yet he understood the power of a godly woman in a home and saw how entire cultures would change as a result of what had been established. He says, you want to turn Crete around? You want to get that church in order? You got all these knuckleheads in there? You got, and I got to tell you, there was a little bit of funky doctrine. There were some weird things going on. There were, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of an inbred family a little bit. The tree didn't branch. It was the family tree didn't branch. It was a little odd. It was kind of a throwback. You walk in and you're like, wow. A few generations skip. You guys got stuck in the seventies. They were still doing acetates, and they had all the hippie draw. I'm like, what is this? It was really kind of crazy. Anyways, <clears throat> and so you had to work through all that and, and get to that place. And there were you had to contend with some false doctrine, and and you had to work through that. And, and a lot of it I didn't know. And if I'd just gone into clean house and do the tightest mode and just start hammering on people without this tenderness and this godliness of these women who were loving their husbands and loving their wives and establishing this environment, it would have been brutal and nobody would have stayed. You know, you, you, you just, it, it, it's this idea of the tenderness of, of, the, of the community. And that's what happened. And then he goes on to say after that layout, and he, he, almost, he almost gives us this equality between older men and older women and admonishing the younger women. And then he just says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. He goes on to talk about bondservants because a large portion of the Roman Empire were slaves. And he says, look, everybody's under authority to somebody. Husbands and wives and children are all under authority to God. The husband is under authority to his wife and that he's, he's, he's commissioned by God to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Wives are submitting to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children are obeying their parents. It's going well with them. They'll live long on the earth. Everybody's under submission to somebody. Uh, a servant is under submission to the master. The master is under submission to do honorably to that, that steward, that servant, uh, according to what God commands, not, not to... You know, you don't provoke your children. You don't provoke your, your servants. And so everybody is under authority to operate that the doctrine translates into good behavior and it changes a culture. And it's called revival. And if it's just doctrine without application, it's a waste of time. We can sit here and study all night long. And if it doesn't affect you and it doesn't change your life, it's a waste of time. And, and this, is, this, is what, this is what Paul says to Titus. Go fix this, and this is where you begin. Find these men, find these women. These women will teach these men, the, 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 these women, and these older men will teach these younger men, and you're going to create a culture of what it is we've laid out here. And you want examples in both aspects. And thank God there were examples. I'm, truly, the church changed because of the handful of women. I look back on it, and I was blown away by it. And then he, he goes on to de- declare how Christ is presented and what occurs and, and, and that his whole idea is that he is, he is creating his own special people, zealous 
for good works. Zealous for good works. You want to create a culture of Christianity. And it changes all cultures. And as we studied last week, we're not a subculture, we're a counterculture. And this is what, this is what Titus was. He, he parachuted into the island of Crete and became a counterculture to the Cretans that were liars and gluttons and, and evil beasts. And Paul put him there and he won the war, won the battle. I'm going to go a little bit more into this, but I want to share with you, um, and I, I brought this can here. I had the privilege, um, I, I came to Calvary Chapel, and, and I think it was in 95, this man died in 98, and I had the privilege of hearing him speak twice. Um, he was a man who held three earned, three earned doctorates in chemistry. That's pretty impressive. Um, he spoke seven languages fluently. He wrote over 30 books. He was considered one of the 10 smartest men on the planet. His name was A.E. Wilder Smith. Has anyone ever heard of him? Yeah, three or four people. You won't find his works because, um, and, and as a matter of fact, um, he, he just absolutely obliterated evolutionists to the point where certain evolutionists won't even uh, debate anymore, creationists. And he did it in Oxford. And, um, but it wasn't always that way for uh, A.E. Wilder Smith. His first name was Arthur. He, um, he was an awful man in many respects. He was brilliant, obviously. But I want to share with you uh, his testimony. And um, uh, listen to this. A.E. Wilder Smith, Ph.D., was a Countess Lisburn Memorial Fellow in Cancer Research for London University, a member of the British Chemical Society, the American Association for Advancement of Science, and New York Academy of Science. He held the chair of Professor of Pharmacology at University of Illinois in Chicago, where he was elected best teacher four times and won the Golden Apple Award three times. Born in England in 1915, he grew up as the eldest son in a well-to-do farming family, an inquisitive child. He went to Oxford University in 1933 to study botany zoology and chemistry under professors De Beer, Ford, Robinson, and Chataway and others. There, his atheism became firmly entrenched, much to the grief of his devoutly Christian mother. And he would speak of his mother in such endearing terms that throughout his life, he would always reflect on this woman and how much she deeply touched him and what she did in his life. He goes away to school and becomes deeply entrenched in atheism. In 1936, at the age of 21, his life took an unexpected turn. A series of events conspired to radically challenge his atheistic worldview in his own words. He wrote, At this time, a young English general moved into our part of Berkshire. He was the youngest general in the British Indian Army and had been stationed for some years in the northwest frontier between India and Afghanistan. He was a genuine soldier, straight, fearless, intelligent, and utterly honest. And his conversion to Christ at the age of 45, he decided without delay that he would use the rest of his life in service for his new king. He took early retirement, bought a house on the Thames, and there he built a small chapel on the lawn, there being no active congregation nearby, and gave evangelistic sermons every Sunday. Everywhere he went, he held services in churches, chapels, and community halls. My dear Christian mother was invited to hear him. She went and, being suitably impressed, invited her sister, Aunt Addie, to accompany her, who promptly became a believer along with a cousin of mine. Then my mother extended an invitation to me. I told her politely but firmly that an Oxford University student does not go to evangelical meetings. 
not even in a, if a general is speaking. My mother poured out her frustration with me to, gen, to the general personally who said cryptically, when Muhammad will not come to the mountain, then the mountain must go to Muhammad. He invited me to high tea at his home. Now in polite English society, when a general invites a person to high tea, he has no option but to go. To refuse is socially unacceptable. So on a lovely afternoon, I drove to Watersmeet and received a friendly welcome. We played tennis, rode a boat on the Thames, and had tea with the family. The general and I retired to his study to talk privately. He asked me if I was a Christian. I answered that I was a committed atheist, even though I had been baptized and confirmed when I was a child. He said that he was a committed Christian and believed that Christ had died for his sins and risen again. I laughed at his naivete and asked him how such an educated man as he could believe in fairy tales of the Bible. Christ is recorded in the Gospels as believing in Adam and Eve, Jonah and the whale, and worldwide flood of Noah. No educated person today could believe in such nonsense. Christ clearly did not know the difference between history and myth. On that basis alone, he could not possibly be the Son of God. During the course of conversation, I told him that Darwin's theories were nothing more or less than the hard facts of history and natural science. The world as we know it had become uh, about through chance and natural selection. The idea of intelligent creator was the ultimate and unscientific thought. And anyway, the theologians of today no longer believed in creation. There was no proof of the existence of God. Feuerbach and others had long since proven that the general's religion was uneducated fantasy and imagination. Gutsy kid. The honorable general, who actually was not at all uneducated, looked at me with sadness. He admitted that he knew next to nothing about natural sciences and that he had not made much progress with me. Around 11 p.m., I said good night. I was sure I had well and truly beaten him. His dear wife, Mrs. Frost, a true lady, later told me that she had found me unbearably conceited and advised her husband to give up on me. I, absolutely, I was absolutely and hopelessly unconvertible. However, the general had a weapon of which I knew nothing. He understood the power of intensive prayer. So for three weeks, he prayed for me, after which he began, he again invited me to tea. And this time I had no reservations about the visit. The house on the Thames was beautiful. I enjoyed rowing on the river and the tennis court was good fun. If need be, I could easily dispense with the general and his arguments. My education had instilled in me an attitude of arrogance. I was ashamed to say that I did not at that time appreciate how unwise, rude, and even naive my actions and thoughts were. Late in the evening, we again retired to his study to converse. His experience as a general had made him a man of obvious strength and character. So you can see this Titus confronting him. An authority, a man with a gift for command. This time he used a fresh strategy with me. He began not with natural science, but with personal character and self-discipline. He's talking about how you live. You're a brute. You're, you're, you're vile. And he would lay these things out as Paul spoke of the Cretans. Um, he said, little did he know how close to the bone he was. I was a frustrated young man. I lacked motivation, was often despairing, not to mention bad-tempered. It was plain to me that the general was a gracious man whose whole life was reflected in his manner, sober, reverent, right? You see how this is working? Are you following it? Okay. His words had a deep impression on me as he spoke each one being underlined by his character. I felt hollow in the light of his solidity, shallow in the face of his depth. 
Make no mistake, the evening was no emotional trick. The general did not mince words. He made it clear to me with great evangelical solemnity that my sins, my violations of the eternal law of God had ruined me. I could have taken offense, but for the fact that I knew that he was saying was true and I was keenly aware of his genuine loving interest in my eternal welfare, after a long conversation, he asked me directly if I felt a need of forgiveness and transforming power of God in my life. My answer was yes, a thousand times yes. And there he prayed to receive the Lord. I won't go into detail, but he went on to tell Mrs. Frost that he had received the Lord and she said... The days of miracles are not yet past after all. (laughs) He said, though a Christian, my intellectual difficulties about Adam and Eve, evolution, creation, and the miracles in the Bible were not totally cast off. So now he has to go into doctrine, right? And he has a man who's going to lead him and others as well. I regularly discuss these problems with a good general, but he could not really help me. He felt I must just believe and everything would be all right. However, one comment he made did help me. He remarked that often when we would trust the Lord and his word, even when we do not understand, God sends people across our path who are in a position to answer our questions more satisfactory. Isn't that precious? After his conversion, Wilder Smith earned a Ph.D. in organic chemistry at Reading University, followed by another doctorate in biochemistry from the University of Geneva and one in biology, excuse me, in natural sciences from ETH in Zurich. Ultimately, it was through his own scientific investigation rather than discussions with Christians that he came to reject Darwin's theory of evolution and began to promote creationism. He eventually became the professor of pharmacology at the University of Illinois and his work led him all over the world speaking about creation and other issues in hundreds of lectures in many famous universities, fluent in German and six other languages. He was particularly effective in reaching many thousands of Germans. And then I'll read this last portion to you. And this is what's so fascinating. This man who was led to the Lord by an older, sober, reverent, temper, sound in faith and love and patience general who loved Jesus, right? Gave him sound doctrine to address life's issues. And he became a highly educated believer. And with that, in 1985, and this is what set him on a trajectory that ended up bringing him into the circles of Chuck Smith and others in the Calvary movement where I had the privilege to hear him twice. And he had a beautiful British accent. He was captivating when he spoke. His, his videos are all online. He was invited to present the scientific case for creation at England's foremost debating society, the Oxford Union, under the auspices of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. This is the biggest debate in the world, basically. The debate took place on the 14th of February, 1986, as a kind of a rerun of the 1860 Wilberforce-Huxley debate. Professor Wilder Smith and Professor Andrews, University of London, were selected to debate the evolutionary professors Richard Dawkins, who no longer debates creationists because of what uh, Smith did to him. He, he ripped them apart lovingly. Richard Dawkins, John Maynard Smith um, were defending the evolutionary position. In his part in the debate, Professor Wilder Smith deliberately gave only scientific evidence as to why Darwinism cannot answer the origin of life puzzle and why the evidence points firmly in the direction of an outside designer using information to order matter. In a direct reply to Wilder Smith's speech, Professor Maynard Smith acknowledged that while Darwin had not answered the problem of the origin of life, any creationist uh, pining their hopes on the riddle of the origin of life as proof that there must be a God would be crazy because before you're very much older, it's going to be solved. I mean, really, 
you'd be mad to say I believe because scientists can't explain the origin of life. Things are moving very fast in that field. As of this present time, well over 20 years since the debate, evolutionary scientists are further away than ever from answering not only the question of the origin of life, but also the origin of consciousness and indeed the origin of the universe itself. And Walter Smith's arguments have stood the test of time and the case for intelligent designers stronger than ever. And this is the last part. Before the debate commenced, it was agreed in the Oxford Union President's office that no religious, non-scientific material or non-repeatable material should be introduced into the debate. Only repeatable, uh, falsifiable scientific fact would be acceptable. Representing Oxford Union's evolutionary point of view were the eminent uh, evolutionists Richard Dawkins, Maynard Smith, and again, Andrews and Smith were uh, representing creationism. The debate did not go well for the evolutionists as A.E. Wilder Smith did an excellent presentation of how science validates creation theory while at the same time science discredits evolutionary theory. Richard Dawkins, apparently realizing he and Maynard Smith were losers, gave an impassioned plea right after the debate ended and before the voting took place. And there were 300 people voting, all students of Oxford having been taught evolution. Um, and he said, the, the, um, he implored the very word uh, Dawkins used, the voting audience not to give a single vote for the creationist position for every vote in favor of creationism would, he maintained, would be a blot on the Eschichion of ancient University of Oxford which was founded by Christians, which is strange. Richard Dawkins then proceeded to attack A.E. Wilder Smith personally, not on the basis of his scientific position, but on the basis of his religious beliefs, alleging that Smith was a Christian fundamentalist since it had been agreed not to let religious factors play any role in the proceeding. Professor Andrews brought up a point of order that at no that no religious considerations should be brought up, and the president of Oxford Union agreed, and Richard Dawkins was told to sit down. Then Professor Maynard Smith stood up and said he was glad A.E. Wilder Smith stuck with pure science and the debate science, which Maynard Smith stated was impeccable. But then he said that A.E. Wilder Smith believed in a small tribal God, which was not acceptable in today's enlightened society. And then he claimed that he and his friends believed the whole big universe was God, which was a superior belief to Wilder Smith's belief. So again, it was the evolutionists who raised the issue of religion and who attacked their opponent, not on scientific grounds, but purely on religious grounds. Wilder Smith stated that most Oxford Union debates are automatically given nationwide press, radio, and television coverage. A debate featuring such prominent evolutionists and creationists debating evolution versus creation should have been no exception, yet Oxford Union moved to cover up the debate, letting not a word of what transpired leak out to the media. In Wilder Smith's autobiography, he noted after the debate was over, Richard Dawkins attacked me on my, not on my scientific discourse, but on the basis of my belief, um, and the president demanded that he sit down. Maynard Smith appreciated my scientific approach, but said that I believed in a small tribal God. Again, I was attacked purely on religious grounds. In the end, of the, in the, end the creationists won 114 of the votes from the voting public of about 300, which was quite surprising as the Oxford Union represented the materialistic, naturalistic, evolutionary viewpoint of biogenesis. The bit debate was never published, as most Oxford Union debates are given nationwide publicity in the press, and it was silenced. And... He also went into Soviet Union, into Finland, and debated creationism and evolutionism, uh, silenced them. He was a brilliant. One of the, the ways he would do it, and I remember him doing this, and I'll never forget, he held up a can. And he said, this represents a closed system. In it was a living organism, 
uh, well, in this case, a cow, right? And And it had all the building blocks of a living organism, DNA, um, uh, everything necessary, right? But there's no life inside this can. It has to be introduced. He said, if there was life in this can, it would ruin our food industry. Botulism. We don't want anything living in here when we open it. He said, in a closed system, you must have life introduced. It can't randomly, and he went through the entire chemistry of it. He said, you need a code to decipher how these, organ, these, these building blocks come together. When you fly over in a plane and you see the words SOS on a beach, what does that mean? Save our souls or help, right? Yes? Save our ship, yes? So you know somebody needs help, SOS, right? But we only know that because we've come to an agreement on terms of what that term means. If there's not an agreement on terms, then those letters are just scratches in the sand. There had to be introduced a logos, the word. There has to be intelligent design into a closed system to create life. It silenced them. They have no idea of the origin of life in a closed system. They can't argue it. They've gone so far as to say aliens introduced it. Well, even there, A.E. Wilder Smith would say, then who brought life to the aliens? There's no answer to them. And he would obliterate them every single time. This man who radically transformed, in many regards, the scientific community, was led to the Lord in a Cretan society a brutish Cretan society. He himself, by his own definition, was a Cretan by a very reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience, older and sober man, the general. And his mother, his mother likewise, reverent in her behavior, not slanderous, not given to much wine, a teacher of good things. She admonished younger women, Addie, younger sister this was the transformation of British culture in the sense of how A.E. Wilder Smith had an enormous effect and brought creation and or I would even say intelligent design to the forefront now we've lost it since he's died in the late 90s there's no one to have taken his place but you know what's fascinating about him he raised five children and he was always a sober reverent temperate godly man And when you'd sit with him, it didn't matter that he had three PhDs and spoke seven languages fluently. He would speak to you as though you were the only person on the face of the earth and he would love you and you could see it in his eyes. And that's called walking out your faith as Jesus would declare to us that he is creating for himself his own special people zealous for good works. And he would speak to a room of 20 or a room of 20,000 in the same way. He was one of the most amazing, tender human beings you could have ever imagined meeting. And I think about that because as Paul dictates to Titus what is necessary to turn not only the culture of a church, but to change an island or the nation of Crete around, he laid it out very clearly. And in this room right now are older men, younger men, older women and younger women. What are you doing? Who are you teaching? Who are you learning from? And how are you walking? 
How are you applying these truths to your life? You know what each of those words mean. You want me to go through the Greek and explain them? We've done it countless times. God is declaring to us all. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. We're not here to teach from a pulpit so that people can get brain fed and, and, and be action dead. We're teaching from the pulpit to transform lives and cultures. And there is somebody out there that needs you to teach them. And there's somebody out there that you need to learn from. And this is what we're called to do. Everybody has a ministry. We are a peculiar people that the Lord has put aside for himself. And he's zealous that we would walk in good works. Zealous. I like this story. Have you ever seen a child with lots of freckles on his face? Yeah. A little boy um, whose face was just covered with bright freckles. He was spending the day at the zoo with his grandmother, and they were standing in the line with dozens of other children waiting to get their cheeks painted by a local artist who was decorating them with tiger paws. A little girl in front of him turned around and smirked and said, You've got so many freckles, there's no place to put a tiger paw. Embarrassed, the little boy dropped his head, and then his grandmother knelt down next to him. An older woman, sober, reverent. She knelt down next to him. I love your freckles. When I was a little girl, I always wanted freckles. And she traced his cheek with her finger and said, You know, freckles are beautiful. And the boy looked up in amazement. Really? Of course, said the grandmother. Just name me one thing that's prettier than freckles. The little boy thought for a moment, peered intensely into his grandma's face and softly whispered, Wrinkles. Things are caught, not taught, right? It's the way we live in the presence of the next generation. We've lost this war in the culture because we aren't taking time to impart into the next generation. And I was blessed that someone took the time to pour into Matthew Glinky and 2,996 flags got put up in the Civic Arts Plaza. That wasn't done by an adult. It was done by one of our kids. And I said last week, when Carly commented on that Sunday morning, I was convicted. She's right. We underestimate this generation. But sure be nice if these older, silver-haired men and women, and I'm speaking to myself here, and you don't have to take this personally, but I'm speaking to myself here, that, that we would spend more time and give them greater credence, pour into their lives. Um, let me close with this last I like this and I wrote it down yeah a woman from California shared how this ministry works she said it had been a busy day at the house home she had ten children and one on the way, so every day was a bit hectic. But on this particular day, she was having trouble doing even routine chores because her three-year-old son, Len, was on her heels everywhere she went. Whenever she stopped to do something and turned around, she'd trip over him and several times patiently suggested fun activities to keep him occupied. Wouldn't you like to play in the swing set, she asked. But he simply smiled an innocent smile and said, Oh, that's all right, Mommy. I'd rather be here with you. 
And then he continued to bounce happily along behind me. After stepping on his toes for the fifth time, she began to lose her patience and insisted that he go outside and play with the other children. And when she asked him why he was acting this way, he looked up at her with sweet green eyes and said, Well, Mommy, in primary school, my teacher told me to walk in Jesus' footsteps, but I can't see him, so I'm walking in yours. Yeah, a little sappy, but true. And that's the thing that changed Crete. That's what Paul knew. He said, Titus, the older men and the older women, that's the key. And the women, the women imparting and teaching these younger women how to love their husbands and love their children will make the church a home. And, And I would just say to us tonight as we finish, I think we all have a role to play. This isn't a spectator sport. And you already are further in than the rest of the church because you come on Wednesday night. But you have a calling that you haven't stepped into yet. God wants to use you. And there's lives to be touched. Amen.